Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. In 1997, then-Governor John Angler closed over a dozen psychiatric hospitals in Michigan, hoping to shift mental health care back on the communities. Now, 26 years later, mental health services are stretched thin. While we can triage the situation, it is getting that population no closer to the longer-term treatment, really, that they really need. And that's where we lack the number of facilities. How did Michigan get here? And what is being done to address those needs? I'm Brian Fisher, and this is The Daily J. Mental health services have been a point of contention the past several years due to the pandemic, mass shootings, and overcrowded hospitals and jails. So how did it get to this point? Well, in Michigan at least, many point the finger at former Governor John Angler for his decision to close over a dozen psychiatric facilities in 1997. But according to Dana Lassenby, the CEO of Oakland Community Health Network, mental health services began shifting away from facilities and towards communities as early as the 1960s. It actually started with Kennedy in 1963, the act, the Community Mental Health Act, right? And at that time, he talked about mental health services being available in the community. And so in that, that was really the startup of looking at institutions and really looking at treatment, real treatment that wasn't occurring in the institutional settings. Or if you move it up in terms of talking about what Engler did, Engler did it for financial reasons. He said that the state hospitals were underutilized. But I would say that the state hospitals served a purpose at that time because we were still continuing to build on the community mental health system, which was, and it still is, historically underfunded. So there are a number of different uh, services we're responsible for providing with the pandemic. Of course, the workforce is in crisis. So we can provide those services, but having the people available to provide the service is a whole nother issue, and I would say a crisis. The Community Mental Health Act of 1963 and Angler's 1997 order to shift care away from facilities towards the community isn't bad in theory. But in Angler's case, closing the institutions outright hurt the infrastructure, and outright taking that option away overwhelmed communities that just weren't prepared for the change. Oftentimes, we're holding them in our emergency room departments, in a room, in a bed, sometimes for long periods of time until we can find a placement into a treatment facility, uh, a mental health facility of some sort, so that they can get longer-term treatment. Acute care hospitals are, are just that. They're for, for very, usually, shorter-term shorter acute care issues. But 
many of the problems that exist in, in, in the mental health population are much longer term problems where they need much more intensive care specifically in the mental health space, not not in the acute hospital space. And so while we can, again, triage the situation, it is getting that population no closer to the longer term treatment really that they really need. And that's where we, we lack the number of facilities. That was Deidre Wilson, the McLaren Healthcare Vice President of Government Relations. And she explains that hospitals aren't equipped for helping people in crisis long term. They seek to stabilize patients, but not institutionalize or provide them the long-term mental health care they need. We certainly don't seek to institutionalize people. You know, when we see people come into our hospitals, we're not looking to institutionalize, you know, folks. We're trying to stabilize and then have, you know, ongoing, ongoing treatment. That's not where we play a role. And then they circle right back into our, our emergency department. So there's not a lot of continuity of care been happening over the past few decades. Another hurdle the current system has to deal with is funding. Dana mentioned it already, but mental health services was and still are underfunded. And that doesn't just apply to facilities. Many people are without the resources to seek health. That's something that Deidre emphasizes. We see gaps. We have, we have significant gaps. You know, the answer isn't just more psychiatric hospitals. The answer isn't just crisis stabilization units, which we're in favor of all of those. The answer isn't just residential treatment facilities or intensive outpatient. It's all of those things. And it's the investment in that. And it's the payment for that. You know, Medicaid, which a lot of the population you know, to have mental illness, find themselves on, it's just dismally underfunded. And it's not just a Michigan problem. It's, it's a national problem. But, you know, we haven't kept pace with the cost. And therefore, you don't have providers or those that are willing to invest in those kind of facilities. Because, you know, while you're not into it to make money, you also can't loot constantly uh, because the, the payment structure doesn't keep up and hasn't kept up through the years. A lack of funding and overwhelmed facilities can mean so many go without that much-needed help. And that can lead to a worst-case scenario. We see a lot of violence increasing in our hospitals and our emergency rooms. It's putting our staff and other patients at risk. You mentioned our officers, the police officers. That's another level of it. You know, as the mental health crisis worsens in Michigan and in the country, uh, you're seeing that sort of violent element. And there's this crossroads between healthcare and the justice system. We've been talking for many years, and there's been some successes in, in some cases on jail diversion because jail, in, in a lot of cases, is not the right place to treat many people for severe mental illness. So, what can be done to prevent these downward spirals before they begin? For Dana, the solution is that very same community health system that is under strain. She argues that it just needs proper funding and they'll be able to make a bigger impact. The other part of it is investing in the community mental health services so that we can, if at all possible, avoid people who need those higher levels of care. We look for care that is the least restrictive. The last thing you want to do is to hospitalize somebody in long-term care or 
have them end up in jail or prison because of their illness. So if you have a strong community mental health system that has the services and supports with the staffing that's needed, you could do a lot more. And in fact, it balances the needs so that when somebody needs a certain level of care, we're able to staff it and provide those needed services. So in fact, you can have a situation where people are less likely to go into crisis. People are less likely to have an interaction with the police officers that may lead to arrest or going to a crisis center. There is some help on the way, though. As part of Governor Whitmer's budget for 2023, nearly $900 million will be used to build a new psychiatric hospital and expand services for those in need. But how far will it go? I think it will go far. I think right now, when you look at the state hospitals, they're old and they do require some um, updates. But also it gives the state an opportunity to expand on the number of beds and the number of, of people that can be served. There are often waiting lists for people who are chronically so severely ill, they're not safe at this point in time to live or to be supported by a community inpatient setting. So they do need that specialized long-term care in one of those state hospitals. So having a state hospital that is really updated and also has the number of beds that are needed is important but also finding the workforce to be and to to work in those hospitals is also equally important. That's not the only need, though. Better funding for the services is a great start. But awareness may be even more important to Dana, because how can you get help if you don't know that it's out there? I think that telling people where to go, who to call when there's a need, Um, is critical. But how do you recognize that need when all of a sudden someone you love and care for is struggling? Many people don't reach out for help until people get to that point, right? And then sometimes you see little things and people tell us, and it's like mental health first aid is one of those trainings we do. So many people believe that if you talk about someone who has may have thoughts of ending their life, that it may push them to do it. In fact, it does the total opposite in terms of caring for people. So I think that community education piece is huge. So that community education is critical. So the person can make one call and get connected to the services and supports that they need. Mental health infrastructure in Michigan and across the nation has struggled to meet the needs of some of its most vulnerable, but it is a work in progress. More attention than ever is paid to it now and funding is following suit. So if you or someone you know needs help, remember, don't be afraid to speak up because there are people like Deidre and Dana who are out there to help you. Thanks to Dana Lassenby and Deidre Wilson for lending their expertise to this episode. And as always, this episode wouldn't be possible without WWJ's digital team. Check out WWJNewsRadio.com for the top local news stories on demand 24-7. Make sure you don't miss out on new episodes of The Daily J by subscribing using the Odyssey app or get it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brian Fisher, and this is The Daily J. Thanks for listening.
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.